Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Jacqueline Castell, a writer, director, and curator who's worked with such luminaries as David Lynch, John Carpenter, and Caleb Landry-Jones, among others. Her first feature, My Animal, written by Jane Matthews, stars Bobby Salvor-Menwes and Amanda Stedberg as Heather and Johnny, two young women drawn to one another in their wintry small town, but Heather has a secret that keeps her from connecting to anyone outside her tightly knit family. After premiering at Sundance earlier this year, the film opened across Canada this past weekend. In Toronto, it has two shows left at the Review Cinema, screening tonight and Wednesday, and if it's playing in your neck of the woods, you should definitely check it out. Jacqueline picked Cat People, the original 1942 thriller from producer Val Luton and director Jacques Tourneur, starring Kent Smith as Oliver Reed, a Manhattan architect who falls for Simone Simons' Irena, a woman from Serbia who believes she comes from a line of people cursed to turn into savage cats whenever they experience intense emotion. Made for very little money, but packed with atmosphere, it forged a new path for the American horror genre with nothing more than suggestion and subtext. And eight decades later, it still carries a deep, dark power. This is someone else's movie. I am just a huge fan of Val Luton. Val Luton's pictures, I think, are just genius. And um, I actually came to them, I feel like, almost embarrassingly late <laughs> um in my in terms of the films that I've watched you know throughout the years um but there were just films that I think I mean especially Cat People and it being Val Luton's kind of first film where he had real full authorship there's so much there's a total reinvention of the horror genre there's like this romanticism there's mystery there's occult themes there's like wartime themes and anxieties ideas about just like sort of psychological components like early psychoanalysis and the threat that that brings this sort of uh tension between like pagan belief systems and christian belief systems and there's just so much packed into these little movies with tiny budgets and just a lot of heart and soul and like beautiful craft. And they were just doing it at like, I mean, they were just whipping them out like so fast, these films. I think like Cat People was like, I don't know, like it was like within a month of being wrapped, it was already on to the next film or something. It was, it was, um, and so it was very interesting to me, just this idea of really putting like a lot of um, strong ideas into a picture and really working with what you have. And I, I just think like there's such a mastery in in these in these films and, and cat people in particular. So I don't know a lot of reasons, but <laughs> but no, yeah, they're, they're all good reasons. Uh, I yeah. just finished a um, a run of uh, programming at Cinematheque uh, mm-hmm. of 80s movies, genre films that yeah. were produced outside the studio system and sort of used their not exactly renegade status, but this was right at the dawn of the the first content era, right when VHS suddenly became this this incredible market for movies. You didn't have to release them in theaters necessarily, or the theater was like the coming attractions for the VHS run, and the tapes would just sell and sell and sell. And it was stuff like well, stuff like the stuff, like Larry Cohen's movie, or um, or the Hidden uh, for, with Kyle MacLachlan and Michael Nouri. And that's I introduced that one as like this. It's the only film that and the Terminator, I think, are the two films from the '80s that are the most economical in terms of storytelling. It's all exposition. There's almost not like Terminator has a couple of flash forwards and, uh, but they're, they're really cheap with models and lighting more than anything else. And then the hidden has two shots or three shots of the creature tops and it's all in the dialogue and it's all in the history and watching cat people again last week to prep for this. It's just like, Oh my God, it's exactly that. Um, And Jacques Tourneur has this, 
incredible touch for just letting the camera stay on people while they relate these stories or, or while they come right up to the edge of speaking. And I know that's Luton's influence on the script too, but the two of yeah. them working together create this tension out of nothing where mm -hmm. it's simply, we're waiting for people to tell each other the truth. We're waiting for people to tell each other what they want. We're waiting for tell people to tell each other who they are. And yes, it's a horror movie, but that's also the soul of any drama. It's, mm -hmm. it's amazing how simple the engine is in this thing. Oh, oh, absolutely. No, I mean, again, like it's it's just the I, I don't know, like uh all parts of the uh I, I don't I don't know, like all parts of the craft combining and I think just the simplicity, like I, I think like what you're saying in terms of the things that you never see, the things that are filled in by your imagination, this idea of sound design, the sound design is unbelievable in this mm -hmm. film, especially for films of this time period, even just like the music choices and the main theme and how there's this repeating kind of lullaby that goes through the film. It almost reminds me of Rosemary's Baby or something like that. Like there's just something that's very haunting about these films. And it's so much about what you don't see. And when you think about it in the context of universal monster movies that were happening kind of simultaneous to the time period, it is such a radically different approach. And I just, I'm in love with it because it's in the realm of the, of the psychological. And so that that's, um, yeah, those are some of my most cherished sort of like the elements of the, of Val Luton and also Jacques Renault. I mean, they're, their combination as uh, as a filmmaker and as a producer combo, director producer combo was like unbeatable. And the other films that they did together too, like I Walk with a Zombie, is also one of my like favorite Lutons. So they were just like a powerhouse together. So um, yeah, the um, the age of the film brings up the obvious question: When did you first see it? I mean, obviously neither of us caught it the first time around. I've, I don't think I've ever been able to see it in a theater, but um, yeah. Laserdisc video, I think. Laserdisc and DVD for me, and then ultimately yeah. on, on Criterion's Blu-ray. Yeah, I think. Um, so the first time that I realized that I was, you know, the first Val Luton picture that I watched many, many years ago was The Seventh Victim, which is one of my favorites, and I'm really obsessed with that film too. But uh, with Cat People, it was one that took me a little bit longer to get to, and the reason that it kind of got brought up for me as a reminder, oh, you have to see this film, was I was doing, um, so I was a co-director at, um, I'm not sure if you heard, the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies. I'm familiar. So I was one of the, yeah, so I was one of the New York co-directors for that, that was founded by Kayla Janice in, in, in Canada and Montreal. And um, so I was one of the co-directors there and I brought in um, a good friend of mine, Dean Hurley, who's actually the sound designer on my animal, on my film. And um, I brought him in to do something about on like the psychology of sound and sound design. And he's a very interesting sound designer. I want to work with him on every picture I ever do. Um, but and he worked and ran David Lynch's studio for like 15 years. Uh -huh. And so, and that's how we first met is I was working on a short film with him there. And uh, he did this psychology of sound class. Um, and he had like a whole kind of talking point on the swimming pool scene and cat people. And I was watching it and hearing him talk about it. And I was like, why have I not seen this movie yet? <laughs> <laughs> this is just ridiculous. And so I think pretty much right after he did that class with us in New York, I was just like, I have to watch cat people right now. And then I watched it and I just completely like fell in love with it. And, you know, it's funny is that I think I saw the 1982 version before the 1942 version. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> um, so it was kind of funny because I had, I had watched the 82 version, which I don't think is as good. And I, you know, and I was sort of like, oh, okay, I don't know. And then 
just kind of forgot about watching the original. So that was like a good reminder to come back to the original material uh, in the like this lens of like, oh, yeah, seventh victim. Oh, yeah. All these things are interconnected. And then that started this whole kind of, uh, I don't know, spiraling for me of just like deep diving into Val Luton's catalog. Um, so, yeah, it's funny, too, to be talking so heavily about a a producer of films too, because usually it's just like, I'm going wild for the director. Right. <laughs> but yeah. Val Luton is just so interesting because I think he just brought um, so much to his uh, productions. You know, he was like often an uncredited um, screenwriter on a lot of his films. He did, he did a lot of the casting and selected the casting. He selected all the entire team. Mm-hmm. Like he put together the whole thing, you know? And so it's really, um, I think that's why I'm kind of speaking more to him perhaps um well certainly again, in the rearview mirror too i mean it is yeah. it's a luton production through yes. and through yeah um i didn't know until i think it's in the commentary track on the criterion disc but i was unaware that it was originally supposed to be a period piece like it was about the legend yeah. of the cat people that that is related here just in throwaway dialogue and and these great oblique little mon- this one oblique monologue and then that that incredible moment in the diner where, uh, you know, someone else comes up and interacts. The texture of the movie, that's mm-hmm. Luton. Like his his understanding that the whole world of the film, like the frame has to be the threat as mm-hmm. opposed to characters and tensions and, and things. Those can happen, but the mise-en-scene has to be the most important thing. That runs through every movie he ever made. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think like, yeah, it's like I was saying, it was just this this combination of all these different themes. And I, I think what you're even talking about in that in that restaurant scene, what's so interesting about it, too, just like doing more research on Val Luton, just like his background and him being, you know, someone who left Russia when he was a child, left with like only his mother, which is like pretty kind of interesting for the time period. And then to come to the United States and be this sort of foreigner and have to be told, like, you know, to to not speak your own language and to assimilate as quickly as possible. And there's an element of that. I feel like in that restaurant scene where it's like, don't speak that language or like, don't show your true colors or who you are. And I think, especially in the context of world war two, I mean, that's got it, you know, the, the feeling at home, right. And oh, the yeah. feeling of, of, of not wanting, of wanting to blend in and not wanting to call too much attention to yourself. And I think uh, one of the things that I like read once was that I thought was really interesting was this idea that he was capturing the horror at home in the U.S. in terms of, you know, there was there weren't a lot of films that were necessarily maybe addressing the dread and anxiety that the public were feeling at home, not abroad, but at home. And I think that's really interesting, too. And that just sort of underlying tension and anxiety um, uh, is something I'm really interested in. And also just like this fear of uh, the, the film for the tall kind of character and women's place in society during that time period. I love that Val Luton's females characters are always really strong. All the female characters have jobs. Like they're <laughs> not just like, you know, they're, they're not like, you know, just stay at home moms or something, you know, they like, uh, Arena's character, she's like a, a fashion illustrator. And then, you know, the, um, the other character of, uh, Alice, uh, yeah, Jane uh, Alice. I wanted to say Jane. And then I was like, no, I'm switching them. But, um, you know, she also works at this, this firm with Oliver and, you know, so it's, it's really nice to kind of see that. And, you know, again, like learning more about him and the fact that like his mother predominantly raised him. She was one of the first, um, she's one of the first, uh, um, American story editors, 
uh, like female American story editors when she moved. And his grandmother uh, was the actress uh, uh, Ala Nazimova, uh, who was in Salome, the 1922 production of Salome, like the really phenomenal looking dramatic Russian American actress. And I so I think I knew that. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, that's so fascinating to me because he had these incredibly strong, interesting females around him. And so I think that that really shows through in his work as well. And so that's something that I always get really excited about is that there's just these kind of strong and, and unpredictable female characters and then analyzing society's anxieties around that as well. And that threat and this idea that Irena is like, unpredictable when she becomes passionate and that she's going to like kill people that like are closest to her, you know? Um, so I really, I, I love that, um, that it's exploring a lot of these like ideas. It's just a film. I feel like, again, you could just dive into so many different elements and it's so textured and so layered. Um, and you're getting so much more out of what would typically be in like a B-level picture of that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no money for the effects. They might as well put it all into the script and, and the development. Exactly. Which then brings us to to Kent Smith as as Oliver Reed, who is mm -hmm. just a piece of pasta. Like he he's <laughs> like dry spaghetti. It's it's remarkable as you as you're talking about how strong the women are. I watched the movie and thought this guy is like it's. I couldn't tell if it's specifically a satire of entitled society idiot, right? Because he's, I guess he's a gifted architect. Uh, mm -hmm. He does, he, we only ever see him holding a slide rule. Um, <laughs> but he has this, this confidence and security, right? He's got money. He's lives in a, he lives in a really nice place. He doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to do. And when he meets Irena, he just decides he's going to marry her and tells her so on their first date. And every time she brings up this, like all the concerns are hers, not just the um, the the inability to have sex with him, which is ultimately the thing that she can't, like it's 1942, of course she can't say it in a movie, but the, the dancing around the Hayes Code, the eroticism of the film is really remarkable where, what, how, what's the exact line? Uh, you know, like I want to be your wife in every way that I can, but I can't. And Oliver's constant, it'll be fine. We'll go see a therapist. Like just everything, I couldn't tell watching this way, this time through, I could not tell if he is supposed to be like unthinkingly supportive or just unthinking. And it's fascinating because he's got women throwing him, like Alice tells him she loves him and out of nowhere, as far as we can tell. Um, and he's just like, oh, that's nice. And doesn't respond simply rolls through everything but the movie is constantly positioning him as never in any danger like when when irena irena i'm not sure how i'm pronouncing if i'm pronouncing it properly or not it's like eastern european my brain goes to irena yeah. when, when she's at the zoo there's never any sense that she's going to harm oliver she's just looking to connect to the panther or to maybe be the uh, the one thing i really like about schrader's remake is the ending which comes up with a way for that character to survive in a way that she doesn't hear. And it's much more clear about, you know, the idea that she is finding a way to punish herself for wanting what she wants as opposed like, which totally Schrader. Um, but also it makes sense within the world of that film. And here, this is a werewolf story, right? There's no happy ending. The only way out is for her to die. And so it's a graceful death sort of, but it's, 
based on the world of the film protecting Oliver and everything being arranged around him in a certain way. Whereas, you know, Schrader telling the story from her point of view is so much more interesting, even if ultimately it goes into places that are just hallucinatory and weird and universal throwing money at him to make a creature picture. Whereas here, the, the whole point of the film is not to have a creature at all mm-hmm. and yeah, have the I monster think, be the person in the situation. Yeah. And I think there, there's a lot of things I feel like I want to comment on for what you just said, but one of the things I really love is the symmetry in the opening and ending of the film, right? Where you have these two characters meeting, you know, at this zoo. And it's so interesting because you have Irina and she's like, she's almost like having some sort of like vision of her own death. She just keeps drawing this image of what will ultimately happen to her on that spot mm-hmm. with the same characters. And, um, and I really, I really love that. That was something that I caught like rewatching it again for this. I, I caught that. And I was like, oh, I don't think I saw that before. And I really love that. And I also just really like that at the end, you know, when she's, when she lets the, you know, the Panther free, the jaguar free and like you know it jumps out of its cage and it's like immediately killed you know like by an automobile so it's like this idea of this like primal instincts or you know that's being like killed by this man-made machinery right and it's just instant like this cannot exist in society it has to be eradicated um and i think that there's a lot of really interesting things too because that that last line that oliver says was like she wasn't lying to us and it's so interesting because she's kind of been gaslit this whole movie that she isn't this actual thing that that she knows that she is and and you see that so much in the um in the psychiatrist uh character um oh yes Oh, uh, oh uh, what's his name? Tom I've got Conway's it. character. Yeah, Dr. Judd. Dr. Judd, yeah, Dr. Judd. Who was but quoted she, at the beginning of the film, which I love, is just this yeah. weird bullshit world that we're in where it's like, eh, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, I think that's that's very interesting, too, because this whole time she's she's going to him and he's supposed to be helping her, but he's basically telling her not to trust her instincts, to only trust him. And you see the, this female character that just has these kind of men around her just telling her kind of what to do. And that if she protests in any way or becomes passionate or any of that, that somehow she's going to be destroyed, you know? Um, and so there's there's uh, there's a lot going on there and there's a lot in conversation there. And um, yeah, I really love the psychological kind of element that is play. And I think that's just like at a time period when, you know, like, Jungian, you know, psychology, like Freud, it was like really in vogue then. So it's really interesting too, that's being explored. And again, in the context of, of wartime and how deeply psychological that was for people and the paranoia of that. Um, it's so nice. All of these elements kind of, uh, again, like the whole ecosystem of the movie is pretty incredible. <laughs> oh yeah. No, there's all this stuff swirling around. I mean, the old world, new world thing, the Panther embodies part of it, but there's also, just the fact that they've given that the script gives Irena the the space to doubt and wonder if she's carried over the superstitions because she rejects the Cestral woman very quickly. Like she wants to be assimilated. She wants to, I think she wants to be saved from this delusion that she's brought over with her. But at the same time, she knows who she is and what she is. She knows the legends and we have to assume this has happened before right? She's not a child. They're, this isn't that kind of werewolf thing where you don't remember what you've done. Like She's clearly aware of it when she chooses to stalk Jane. So 
the film is also kind of quietly gaslighting the audience uh, by denying her a speech of about her own personal history. I mean, there, there. I kept thinking like, there might be some possibility. Would you like? Is there a way to correct it? Not that I'm trying to remake the movie in my head, but I was just wondering about how the script was created and if there was a scene where she talked about an affair that didn't work out or a boy back home or some some other kind of story. In the um, in uh, in the Schrader film, which again, like you, was my first introduction to the story, uh, it's very clear that she's a virgin, that this character has never had sex but wants to and mm-hmm. and is experiencing desire. And this film, this version, she's she's not sanitized but the movie is so we can't know her which makes her more attractive to oliver which makes her more interesting to us and i love the fact that simone simon isn't playing any of that stuff she is just in pain and she's sad and alone um even though yeah even when she's she's smiling through it right she's trying to get through it all um and that that opening scene with with oliver when she's sort of flirting with him She's also just re, she's redrawing, as you said, she's, she's reenacting or, or preparing for her own death and, and she's still putting on a happy face. And that's just so tragic. It's so sad from the very beginning that this is where this is all going. I know. And that feels like the true horror of the film, right? If we're talking about it in a horror context, it is that, that uh, deep disconnection or alien, sense of alienation that characters, that the characters are feeling, I mean, especially Arena. And, and that's also something that I'm always really interested in in filmmaking is just outsider characters, right? Yeah. And ones that just do not fit in with society. And then when you put that character in society, what does it, what kind of ideas does it stir up or what things does it um, complicate or, you know, what, what really truly shows up that's always under the surface, always lurking there, always hidden that people don't want to talk about, you know, or refuse to talk about, but it comes out in their actions later. So I, I always love that kind of, um, you know, storytelling. I think I'll, you know, always, always be attracted to films like that with those types of extreme characters. So yeah, she's, she's a good one. Um, yeah, the existence of that character in the world of the film is a provocation. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, she course, can't absolutely. be left alone. She mm-hmm. she can't exist as she kind of maybe wants to. Mm-hmm. Um, she has to be pulled into a man's orbit because mm-hmm. she's desirable and he's bored or lonely or something. I mean, there's a woman at the office who likes him and yet here he is flirting with a stranger in a park Yeah, uh, because there's nothing that's ever stopped him from getting what he wanted. Like clearly, and, and it is, I know it's, it's the era that we're watching, but it is fascinating to watch two outsider filmmakers within a studio system taking this on and just making an explicit film about, uh, in the same way that Stoker's Dracula is about the, you know, like the Eastern European bloodsucker and, and <laughs> there's heavy anti-Semitic undertones to it. Yeah. Um, and you can pretend there aren't, but uh, some people are saying, well, no, Dracula, Vladley Impaler is explicitly Christian. It's like, okay, but it's, the typing it's the way that the film sees him this movie doesn't have that exactly eastern europeans are mysterious and seductive and dangerous in a way that you know men are into but watching luton who came from that same background create a world where arena is doomed is fascinating like uh even even think well you brought up i walked with a zombie which is about creating a whole world that is othered by def- definition right like it's just it starts out being exotic and then becomes dangerous and terrifying and and i know that was 
that was a great way to sell. It's still a great way to sell stuff in America, unfortunately. But it was like in the 30s and 40s, that was the exoticism of the of the American cinema. Like you could simulate. I mean, obviously it's a backlot, but you can show people things they've never seen before and teach them that it's safer to stay at home and be normal. I don't think Cat People writes itself that way. I don't think it gives its, the audience the excuse of going back to your nice house and everything's fine. This is a movie about something wonderful being destroyed by mm-hmm. by the modern world. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, and again, I think that, I don't know, yeah, it just circles back to, again, like the, the tragedy of the story and the tragedy of, um, you know, characters that are desperately grasping um, to be loved, you know, and can't be you know, and they just won't ever be assimilated. And, um, and that deep desire and longing for that and the reconciliation or just even like the reconciliation between being from somewhere that's far away and exotic and being placed in this completely different society and like how you have to reckon with that and how you have to incorporate that into your personality. Um, I don't know. It's, it's all stuff that I think is really, um, uh, just really poignant and, um, sad his films are deeply sad yeah. in a way, you know like um but but really effective in that way and and i think uh particularly again like geared towards um a very specific audience because again like if you look at val luton's sort of catalog i mean it's just one after the other after other like like three films released in the same year i mean they were just like cruising through them with this you know like very effective i don't i I resist wanting to call it a formula because I don't think it's that. I think it's just more of this like very specific vision that was being like sort of put forth in a very specific package in a way, a very specific way that they had to make the mil- the, the movies themselves. Um, but I, I I don't know. It's it's pretty I don't know. It's pretty remarkable, and it was obviously like striking a chord with audiences at that time. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. Last week, I wrote about Arrow's new 4K editions of Barbarella, Black Hat, and Tremors 2 Aftershocks, and the shocking loss of another young Canadian filmmaker, Charles Officer. Honestly, that sucked. Things will probably be brighter this week. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. You like reading about movies, I like writing about them. Come check it out. I think it's an aesthetic more than anything else, right? Like just mm-hmm. this intelligent, stable composition where we're, we're welcomed into the world and then trapped there. Yeah. And the movie itself, because we don't see the creature in this film specifically, uh, other than two shots of a panther, which I think were inserted at the last minute over the objections of both Luton and Turner, um, you get this sense that the movie itself is attacking us because it's sounds and shadows and shape and editing and so sophisticated for 1940. I'm really struck again by the swimming pool scene is the one everyone remembers, but the transverse park sequence is mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah. On the, on the Criterion Blu-ray, there's a, an interview with uh, John Bailey, the cinematographer who shot Schrader's mm-hmm. version, and he's just uh, rhapsodizing about the lack of effect in the film, that it's all external, that it's all suggestion. And he points out that the transverse sequence, it's probably the same wall that the characters just walk past with different dressing every time. Maybe the lights are a little shifted or there's one brick that they move around. And it's so economical. And all it is is like the staccato rhythm of the heels clacking. And then suddenly the heels stop. And 
if you're in the dark watching this movie, you're aware of that silence because the movie has already told us what it means. And just the, the, the confidence and the assurance of that sequence is just so impressive. What is it now? 80 years on and people are still kind of trying to rip it off in slasher movies. They just don't know where they're getting it from. Yeah, I know. I mean, because if you think about it, like just as a human being in the world, when you think about some of or, like the scariest things that have happened to you or, or just like scary ideas in your head, oftentimes it's like you can't really see the thing and you're yeah. hearing things you're, and your imagination starts to go to these very far out places, like way more extreme than the situation actually calls for. But it's like, it's so interesting when you kind of like let your audiences like trust themselves or just like work off of their own instinct. I mean, especially when we're talking about a film that is about this like repressed instinct, you're actually inviting the audience in to experience their instincts those animal like instincts that we have, we, we all share, like, you know, when you feel the sensation of looking at somebody looking at the back of your head, we all know what that is. And we don't know how to describe it, but we all have felt it. And so I think that's something really interesting in terms of inviting uh, audience participation. And I think also when not like talking down to your audiences and allowing them to project their own greatest fantasies or fears onto a work, I think is always really interesting and effective because I don't know. I think I found just like uh, on a filmmaking side, it's so interesting how people can come at you with all these different ideas about a work. And you'll be like, I don't want to take that from you. That's not what my intention was. But that's very interesting to me, like just from a psychological perspective that tells me so much about what you're craving or needing or what you're seeking out. And I, I think that's really interesting when you allow that kind of um participation in in a in a work. Um and I think that, you know, these these pictures and Jacques Turneau and like the combination of that and, and Val Luton, like they they just really um captured those types of techniques so effectively and really made it very like a sensual experience of watching the movie, you know? And I love the use of black especially. I love that they, you know, when you have like kind of, uh, you know, limitations in terms of your like sets and locations. It's like if you can kind of just like let the sides go into black and you can kind of limit it, you can kind of control the space a lot just by painting with light, right? You're just painting the scene and and calling attention to the things that you want to have the audience call its attention to. But I think that there's so much power uh, in not seeing things. And that's why I sometimes never understand when people get very preoccupied with like, oh, this movie is too dark or I couldn't see anything. And I'm like, why do you need to see everything? You know? <laughs> that's not how life operates. We don't see most of the things that terrify us. It's it's in our minds. It's like, you know, and, and um, I don't know that that's infinitely more powerful. And a lot of times when you do see stuff, it's not very satisfying, you know, because it can't ever live up to what's in our own head, you know, especially on a horror level, we're talking about things that are like, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, effects driven and things like that. It, it almost, there's just very rare, ex rare occasions where I've found that it really like makes me feel like, like it paid off or something, you know what I mean? But yet there's this constant pressure of like, well, we have to see it. We have to see it. We have to see it. And I'm like, why? <laughs> why do you have to see it? <laughs> it's very like, almost like very subjective kind of filmmaking. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Or, another thing that like sort of reference point that comes to mind is something like Black Swan or something, where there's something similar where you're with the character somehow, even though you're not like walking behind them hand towel or whatever, different techniques, but you're, you're there really like 
you're really enmeshed in the character somehow still, you know? Yeah. Well, the film is nervous, I think, mm-hmm. is how I would describe it. The film is, it puts us in Irena's frame even when we're not with her. Yeah. Um, just those shots in the in the office, in the uh, with those incredible drafting tables and those and those light sources coming up from from a table itself, where there's no threat, there's no danger. She's not there. It's just people sitting around, and yet there's a noir atmosphere that's already infected them. The um, the presentation just feels like it's stylized, surrealized in some way. Where this is still a world where monsters can exist. It's not the normal world. Like it's not that it's not that Irina is invading Oliver's life. It's just that he's never noticed any of the stuff that's going on around him because he is an oblivious man. Um, and you know, Jane in the swimming pool scene gets to feel threatened in a way that doesn't make sense, but absolutely makes sense like emotionally. And, and she has the proof of the shredded robe and we know something happened, even though, it's impossible that Irena would have gotten in. Like there's, there's no way. And yet it happened, right? Like it's, this world allows for these things to happen to the rational, normal characters. And, you know, I'm thinking about something like Curse of the Demon or Night of the Demon, whichever title you choose to use, where again, there isn't supposed to be a monster and the producers imposed one on it. But that thing bears Luton's influence so profoundly. Um, what, 15 years, 16 years later, 58? where the world itself is the threat and we just happen to be aware of one of the monsters and she's an unwilling monster. Like she knows what's going to happen and she doesn't want it to happen. She's, she's actually the hero in an awful fairy tale sort of way. And I can sort of see the appeal of telling the story as a costume drama set hundreds of years earlier. And, and you've got more monsters and you've got more clearly defined good and evil, but then Luton saying, no, 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 it has to be now or it won't matter to the audience. They'll be able to shake it off like a fairy tale. Again, the guy was, he knew exactly what the material needed. This, this was the only way to tell the story. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think that that's like, I like the, the sort of nervous movie kind of, uh, label that you're kind of putting out it just feels very nervous like I I don't know these these characters that are um I don't know like again very much at conflict with themselves at conflict with society and that internal struggle and like us like sort of having these two sides where you're questioning her you're questioning her own sanity and you see like you know this it's so interesting the idea of like the shredded robe right because it's like the idea that like she would have just gone in there and just like ripped it up with a knife like that's like also so like terrifying you know and 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 also bizarre and fantastical and doesn't really make any sense but again in that kind of strange kind of um i don't know dream logic or you know it all kind of makes sense i, I like the the element of the the fairy tale element of it but not really uh i don't know not not holding not not allowing uh, for there to be the kind of release maybe that a lot of fairy tales allow audiences. You know, it's not letting anybody off the hook. Yeah. Yeah. This is very much a Hans Christian Andersen version where, yeah. you know, like you get what you want, but you're punished for it mm-hmm. beyond yeah. any any reasonable limit. Yeah. And I love the whole thing with Irina, too, and this idea of her actually being this character with a lot of ethics. And she is really trying to protect the person that she loves and then she's just completely sort of tossed to the wayside 
for doing this, you know, and she has her reasons and she can't explain them, but her, her intentions are really pure. And so it makes it almost like a lot more, um, kind of horrific the way she's treated, like even like the museum scene where they go to the museum and, and she's, it's the, it's the three of them. And they're just like, Irina, go, go to some other exhibits. We're going to go walk through the museum together. Like we're the couple. And like, just that's, horrible you know it was such a like heartbreaking moment in the movie and you you understand why she starts to lash out and you understand why she's like protective and that like she really is motivated she's motivated by love and the desire to be loved but she can't she can't actually connect in that way and so she's being rejected so it's very interesting to see that that, again that moral ambiguity um in terms of her you know, in terms of her being a good character that's seen as bad, and then the, you know, the the bad characters that are seen as good, you know, and everything's just sort of a reflection of itself. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that it makes a lot of sense that that would be such an evocative kind of idea during that time period or why it would, again, like strike with audiences in that way. Yeah, the casual, just, it's not even cruelty. It's just pushing, pushing her desire away. Um yeah, even I'm, I'm thinking about the museum scene now. It's like, yeah, she's an artist. Go to a gallery. Why would you do that to her? They yeah. want to look at bridges for work. Go look yeah. at bridges for work. You don't have to yeah. turn this into a double date yeah, or a exactly. single date. It's like Oliver flattering himself somehow by showing her his culture or full stop culture. And again, it's the it's the West trying to tame the East, right? Civilize mm-hmm. the civilize the immigrant. But, oh, she's so much smarter than either of them. And it's just mm-hmm. so sad to watch that happen. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think again, it like, it really parallels, you know, from it parallels so much of like Valun's sort of like, um, own life and what, and how much of himself he was putting into these films, um, and his personal experiences. And I think that also shows through, I think that even when you're talking about a genre picture or, you know, something being commissioned for a studio or whatever it is, it's like, um, I think you can always tell when there's that personal element even if it's not obvious, even if it's not like, oh, you can take it as a, a page out of their direct life, you feel it somehow, you know, and you you feel it in the work and and you respond to it because there is a, um, I think there's so much power and magic to being able to put forth your own stories and different types of packaging. I, th- I really view like, I don't know, I think filmmaking is, is, is almost like a magical act. It's like spell casting. It's you're, you're casting a spell for audiences. Um, and I think that, you know, filmmakers are kind of these like modern magicians in that sense. Um, and I really love that kind of, uh, you know, idea and 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 using maybe your own sorrow and pain that you've experienced your life and transmuting it. It's almost like an alchemical sort of operation that you're you're sort of you're 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 putting it into a work and you're putting it into something that can hopefully connect with other people. And I think I, I really I love that idea and i love that there is this kind of again like a, an occult sort of sensibility to a lot of this work or a fascination with these darker corners of life or i don't know exploring those different kind of um avenues like very unashamedly you know just going straight to the darkness and the characters all they go straight towards the darkness like you have irena and she's she's fully engaging in it you know and, and she's afraid of it but she also like i don't know has an acceptance in a, in, in a way about who she is, you know? Yeah. I mean, she knows it's there, right? Mm-hmm. Like everybody else is denying it, but she has to, if she doesn't interact with it, it will destroy, well, I mean, destroys her anyway, but she needs to at least 
know herself before anything can happen in any direction. And yeah, the, the idea that there is no happiness for her is just a terrible thing, but I suppose mm-hmm. that also resonates with, with Luton's experience as an emigre, right? Like you carry your trauma with you. There is no escaping it. Yeah, exactly. And that's a positive way that you can explore that or a safe play, place that you can explore that stuff or I don't know, un- work within like, and like, I don't know, energy within yourself or having these different mirrors of yourself or mirrors of your different experiences. And I, I think that, I don't know, I think that all filmmakers do it, even, you know, even in, uh, I mean, maybe there's some like examples, like maybe, maybe not like a Marvel movie or something, but you know, I do think that like filmmakers really do try to like inject a lot of themselves into the work. Um, but it's often in indetectable ways or it's in ways that are surprising, you know, are not ones that are like, on the nose all the time, which is also um, very, I don't know, very exciting to me, that idea. Well, yeah, well, that's where the meat is, right? I mean, that to, to, to divine it, to pull it out and find the, the, the specifics that brought someone to the story they're telling, that's always the best part. And, and that actually lets me segue into, into your work too, because <laughs> my animal feels very personal in a way that it can't possibly be. Where does that, where's the line for you? Where, like, when did you know that it could work as a story rather than just a, a like a, a personal transmission of emotional state? Um, you know, I think like, I think when, when I, when I got that script passed to me, I knew at the time I was like, okay, the script needs a little bit of work and I'm going to work with the screenwriter, Jay Matthews on it. But I just, I think there's something about when you first read something or when you're writing something you know, I do both, but with this particular project, it was another script. Um, are you really, is there like an emotional truth or emotional resonancy? Like, is is that there? Do you think about the story again and again? Does it sort of just keep manifesting in your head? Do you think about cast? Do, do all these, does it start, does the world start to spring up around you? And I think that when that does happen, then you're like, okay, this is something that I need to follow or I need to trust my instinct in or on or when you start to see interesting synchronicities align, you know, I really pay attention to a lot of that kind of stuff. And so I felt like there was a lot of that going on, but I, you know, I I just really, um, I loved at the core of the film that there was just this very, um, I don't know, very like interesting, like family drama that I could really connect with and how those sort of like core elements of like what we inherit, how that then, you know, kind of impacts the partners that we choose or the relationships that we choose or, you know, like how those traumas then kind of like come back up or something, you know, when you haven't resolved things within yourself. Um, and so I just really, that stuff really resonated for me um, and those ideas. So that was, I just, you know, I felt the material was really evocative. And so, and and you see shades of your life, like I was saying, right? You see things that happen to you in different forms, in different ways, not exactly like that, but that you're like, this feels so true to what I experienced at a certain point in my life that um, I want to explore this and I want to mine this and I want to get into it with myself. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that was it, it's not like there was like a specific moment, but it was a series of things that happen that you can only kind of see later, maybe in retrospect, you know, like, oh, that was all kind of supposed to occur in that way. Um, so, yeah, I feel it's a very mystical process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never understood the 
the, I mean, I've never made a movie, so I, I haven't had that compulsion, the mania that takes over when you get something that you can't put down. Yeah. Um, but people have said that over the years, like, it always comes up in, in conversations with filmmakers is that the moment they knew is the moment that they realized like either they were the only ones who want to tell the story, which is a great way of, of, you know, like being noble and stepping up and saying, I'll do this. No one else wants it. And it's like, well, okay. But then the other side of that is, Somebody once told me, it might have been Del Toro, I think, he said that like once he started to see the frame, he couldn't stop. And it just kept happening. And yeah. so I can't remember what the script was. It might have been Kronos, actually. It was just like he knew he knew like a wide shot that he wanted to use of the of the shop. And then that, yeah, it was. It was Kronos. And then it just started rolling and he, he saw the whole film as he was writing it. But that one came from him, so it's not quite the same. But the yeah. the idea that when someone connects to the material that profoundly that the movie has to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you make it your own just by making it, of course. Uh, but the things that I, the things that struck me about my animal is the, the texture and similar to cat people, like you've built a world that doesn't exist anymore. It's uh it's full of, you know, four by three televisions and, and old fluorescent tube lighting and, and the way everyone relates to one another is just a little bit, wrong or off and the text is you know it's a werewolf movie there are reasons but but can i say this is a werewolf movie is that okay oh, yeah oh yeah i think that's very much in the universe at this point <laughs> in terms of the film so yeah okay but there are rules and there are there are codes of behavior that we as the audience expect that you don't provide which i thought was kind of wonderful that the characters are allowed to relate to each other as people rather than archetypal you know mm -hmm. like predator and prey because that's not really what's going on. Maybe they're not monsters. Maybe they're monsters. Maybe the idea of a monster isn't really something that applies in this story. Yeah, no, I, I really, I really love that idea. Um, and, and again, like playing against expectations. And that was, again, one of the things that I also really appreciated about the script to my animal was that I was like, you know, there's such a specific idea of what a werewolf film is for a lot of people. I don't think it's been quite as like deconstructed as other types of genre like films. Like I think that with vampires, you've seen it done in every kind of way. You've seen like, you know, art house versions of it, like only lovers left alive. And then you've got like total creature features, you know, and, and it completely runs the gamut. You've got like beautiful, stylish films like The Hunger, you know, it just it goes in so many different directions. And I feel like with werewolves, there's there's maybe more of a hang up there or something or this is idea that it has to be a creature film. And so I love that idea of like kind of playing with people's uh, ideas of what happened or the mystery of it or or not showing things or one of the things I remember really loving in the script was when Heather is locking herself into her own bed and I was like that's so strange and like interesting and it provokes so many questions um and the underlying message of how are you restraining yourself what are the sort of limitations that you put on yourself right and like just all the kind of like me I remember that really sticking out in the script for me um that being like this very exciting moment and I you know I, I think that's um the symbolism and a different kind of language. I mean, I guess this is why, you know, I'm inherently a fan of Val Luton, right? Is is it's kind of playing in all these same kind of ideas and presenting the audience with something a little bit different. So 
I wanted to uh, I wanted to play with that, but I knew I was like, oh, I'm gonna have some backlash from the the genre community because they're just gonna be like, I think the number one people thing people say when they're reviewing it is like, there's not enough werewolves, and I'm just like, okay, you're maybe missing the point of the movie, but but I you know, but obviously I I love and appreciate genre films as well. I mean, I love every type of film, but uh, I thought that it was interesting to be able to play with the form and challenge expectations of what you think you're gonna see. So. Yeah. Well, there's never enough werewolves in any werewolf movie. Yeah, right? I know. That, that's, exactly. that's what people are always disappointed by. <laughs> I know. And then you get something like one of the Howling sequels where it's just a bunch of suits and it's not that interesting. I yeah. mean, it's the the absence of the monster is the scary. But again, brings us back to cat people. But yeah. but in my animal, they might not even be monsters. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a threat, there's a danger, but that's not what your movie is about it's it, it's I, I usually end the podcast by asking people if there's anything from the film they've chosen that they've stolen or lifted or homaged but but it seems so clear that my animal and cat people are both really about the fear of desire mm-hmm. and and what this always sounds so corny to say it out loud but what love makes of us what it makes people want and do are not the things like the best relationships are the ones that challenge you as well as the partner to be your best selves, right? Like everybody says that, what's the line? Somebody, not everybody, but there's this great line someone wrote about how, um, you know, you're if you're doing it right, your entire romantic relationships should be defined by trying to live up to the image that you put out on the first date. Like you, the, the version of yourself that you're performing should be your best self. Therefore, you should always want to be that person. And it's hard. Like it's hard to be that person and it's hard to, acknowledge that you're going to love someone right like to to actually go with the impulse and it's what poetry is and it's what romance is and it's all this other stuff but it's also messy and weird and challenging to your self-image and and all of these things and when you're especially when you're younger and you don't really know who you are yet in my animal is all wrapped up in that in such an interesting way and the performances are so heartfelt for that and for what this is as a as a genre film that should be counterintuitive like it should it should annoy people that there isn't enough of a werewolf in it but we're seeing the we're seeing the monsters all along they're just not monsters does yeah. that make sense no of course absolutely and i mean i i love that kind of uh reading of the film because that's really what i was like hoping to put forward because yeah i mean again like especially at that age but i think throughout a person's life you're you're fighting so much of yourself. You're fighting so much of your own instincts and desires or what other people's expectations are for you. And like a lot of times I find that these, you know, uh, relationships that you have with another person are this weird flashpoint. They're like a breaking point. They like break your reality completely open and make you see the world from a dramatically different perspective. And that's why it's so powerful. That's why it's the thing that people talk about, you know, I mean, and it's really, I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's about, um, exploring yourself and exploring what you want and what you want in another person. And at what point, have you loved yourself enough that you can and you can have somebody come into your life who can authentically love you? And I think that both characters, both Heather and Johnny, have this real tragedy to them because the 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 deepest connection they've had with anybody is with each other. But they're both fighting things that they haven't quite accepted in themselves yet. And so then that's the barrier preventing this one really like um, meaningful relationship for both of them. And so I think. Um, and I just think so many people 
struggle with that. And especially, I mean, it's so messy when you're young and you're trying to discover all of these things. And I, I really wanted to kind of like really get into the head of the character by, by making it really subjective, by really being with the character, by using things like color and lighting and sound design and music cues to kind of help you get to these emotional states with the characters, whether they be moments of like passion or anger that you're kind of going there with them in this kind of like sine wave through emotional states. Almost my DP and I, uh, Rudy McCashin, we were talking about it almost being like a moon cycle of the emotional states of the character, you know, and I'm wanting to be with them because I think that when you're younger, you're just so flushed with emotions and they just overtake you and you see the world through completely like, like it's just totally bonkers the way that you're viewing the world when you feel that way for the first time. And so, um, I don't know. I love, I love that, uh, idea of exploring that or allowing people to kind of like step into a character that maybe they don't really have any real connection to, but they can step in and live their experience and, and feel maybe some of the like pain and suffering that they need to ultimately kind of overcome or reconcile with before they can craft their path forward. Right. Um, and, and that's often difficult and painful, you know, because you are challenging yourself, you know, and it usually, I mean, there are some exceptions, but it usually doesn't work around, work out the first time around. <laughs> um, but then the lessons that teaches you are the things that then allow you to, you know, kind of um, become what you're meant to become, you know, and that's, that can, you know, again, that process is is painful and there's suffering involved in it sometimes. Yeah. If you're willing to learn, right? Like yeah, that's the real challenge. If yeah. you're willing to know yourself and learn. Um, I'm thinking again about cat people and how Oliver has learned nothing at yeah. the end of this. Like he, she never lied to us. Okay. But that wasn't the point. That's not what you're supposed to take away from this experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's course. a beautiful, graceful note, but yeah, doofus. That's not what this was about. It was not, a, <laughs> it was never about you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, um, I don't know. And, and, and it's sort of left to be seen how much his character will, I mean, you don't really get the sense that his character will really like integrate that, but you know, or what the implications are of that statement, you know, that, that, uh, that he was wrong, that he did something wrong, that he didn't believe her, that that had something to do with her own destruction. I mean, that's all kind of left as an open question, but it certainly, I guess, beckons the audience to uh, think about others in their life from maybe a different perspective, or that maybe what you see on the surface is not actually something that is actually occurring, you know, to another person. So I think it hopefully could could help to raise empathy uh, amongst people and different people. Yeah, I mean, it's a classic for a reason. I think it's because people yeah. continue to connect to it and discover the the refraction, all the layers, uh, all the stuff that's kicking around, and and with any luck, people will see pieces of themselves in my animal as well, and and it's certainly like it's this alluring romantic vision of something that's possible within the frame of a horror movie, but it's not really interested in being a horror movie, and I don't mean that in any kind of negative way. I just think it's, I think it's a really nice window into what genre can do. I'm seeing that more and more in the last couple of years that that films are pivoting into a, a genre as a as a springboard rather than a reason for being that stuff that interacts with genre and plays on our expectations as an audience um is the most intriguing to me right now things that are just willing to accept that yep stuff happens in the world that we can't understand and here's one way of seeing ourselves in it mm -hmm. and so yeah it feels like 
my animal and cat people are, oh God, I hate myself for thinking of this. They're howling at the same moon. Oh, absolutely. And I think also just, I, I'm really interested now in this idea of these, like, I think right now there's a lot of interesting cross genre stuff that's happening. Oh, and yeah. these are the things that like, I, I love that kind of filmmaking and I love when genres play off of each other. It's always one of those things where people tell you it's like the hardest film to make or that nobody's interested in that or whatever. But I actually find it to be the opposite that when it's done well, those could be some of the most evocative titles. And I think that you can use like for me, I think about genre from the perspective of it gives you like an agency and a license to be able to take audiences somewhere like unexpected that they will just go with you know and that mm -hmm. you can really like allow them to kind of like I don't know leave reality behind a little bit you know and get into um get into more like I don't know deeper conversations about uh, like emotional states or feeling states or a mood or something that you want to evoke or a story that you want to tell in that way and I think it just allows you to really to do that and play with um a lot of the atmospherics, I guess, you know, and a lot of the ways that you can set the stage to make people receptive to different ideas, you know? So I don't know. And I'm always kind of interested in like escaping reality in some ways, you know, I think a lot of filmmakers are right. You're just like off creating totally different universes <laughs> that appeal to you. And um, I think that that can also be really powerful because I think that sometimes um, daily living can just be it can be a lot you know and there's a, a lot that I think that um people deal with in their lives and I think if you can kind of allow people some space for a little bit of fantasy I think that's really an important tool for society and I think it's always I mean you look like we were talking about fairy tales I feel like there's a um there's an an element to that to like modern modern storytelling. I mean, I even think about people who craft conspiracy theories as modern fairy tales. You know, I mean, it's like interesting how the brain needs it to process things that feel so difficult to comprehend. And so, we're I think as humans, we're always looking to dramatize in that way. My thanks to Jacqueline Castell, whose new film My Animal is now playing in theaters across Canada and available on digital in the U.S. Thanks also to Winnie Wong. She knows what she did. You can follow Jacqueline on Instagram at Jacqueline Castell, all one word, and you can find Cat People on Blu-ray and DVD in a beautiful special edition from the Criterion Collection. It's also streaming on Prime Video in Canada and available to rent and buy on various VOD services across North America. You can find me on Blue Sky at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com semcast, that's the first 52 episodes of someone else's movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week. <laughs>